I don't know if I'm really that keen to get arrested. Pretty well all the protesters are, uh, are Greens. I'm very proud of the forest industry and we should be proud of what they do. It is selling out the interests of Tasmanians. We don't need these people coming in telling us how to manage that part of the, the um, uh, the area. When the trees were being cut down, you could hear the trucks and that. But apart from that, it's very, very peaceful. I believe that we've got to make a living off out of the Tarkon. It's got to be multiple use. I don't want to destroy one industry for the sake of another. I think there's got to be a way to find a convenient, appropriate balance. We've got no need to be at war with, with, uh, with anyone. We are going to win the Tarkon, ladies and gentlemen. This is Wild Asset, a podcast about Tasmania's Tarkine region and the people caught up in a battle of industry, environment, politics and identity. I'm Lachlan Bennett. And I'm Imogen Elliott. In this podcast, produced by Fairfax Media, we'll be exploring one of Tasmania's most contentious patches of land and the clash of interests that will shape its future. This is the Frankland River, a majestic waterway that carves through one of Tasmania's most stunning natural environments, the Tarkine. The Tarkine covers land between the west coast and northwest of Tasmania, and it holds Australia's largest tract of cool temperate rainforest. It's home to a rich ecosystem of plant and animal life, and also highly coveted timbers like blackwoods, myrtles, and celery top pines. While most can agree on the Tarkine's beauty, there's rarely been a consensus on how the area should be managed. New legislation would see part of the Tarkine harvested for specialty timbers, and it's raised fears Tasmania's bitter forestry wars have been reignited. Under the former Labor Green government, it was agreed part of the Tarkine would become future potential production forest, not to be harvested before 2020. But that forestry deal was torn up in 2014, after the Liberal Party's Will Hodgman became Premier. Now, the proposed Unlocking Productive Forest Bill would see the forest opened up two years ahead of schedule to prop up the state's struggling forestry industry. As debate of a new forestry bill continues in state parliament, environmental activists are on site in the Tarkine. They're ready to take action if forestry workers move in. They fear forestry workers could move in and begin work at any moment and have established a small protest camp beneath a tall tree dividing two forestry coops. I spent a lot of time up here as a kid. We've got family in Woolnorth and Smithton and stuff, so it's pretty, like, you know, it's pretty special for me and, yeah, I think a lot of people find, um, find the place really inspiring. 25-year-old university student Caitlin Wilkinson drove for six and a half hours from the state's capital of Hobart to take part in the protest. She's one of more than 100 people who have spent time at this protest camp during more than 100 days of action. So what do you hope to achieve from coming out here and having this experience? 
Well, I hope that it's protected and I hope that um, other people kind of recognise its importance, I suppose. Yeah, and I don't know, I'd like the, um, the image of what conservation is to not be tarnished by job, you know, job killers or whatever because that's not what it's about. Like, obviously, we all want to work and we all need money. Um, but, yeah, I hope that other people who live around here can recognise its huge cultural and environmental significance. What would you do if the police came and said you have to move on? Um, I would probably, yeah, I'm not sure. I don't know if I'm really that keen to get arrested, but if, it, you know, I would decide that in the moment, I think. Um, yeah, I would probably move on, I think, but, yeah, I'm sure other people would come in and, you know, and resist or, yeah. Um, it might be a bit different if they started... If they started logging, then yeah, I kind of I'd personally have to make that choice, I suppose. But just like anyone would, yeah. What about your parents? Are they concerned? Um, <coughs> yeah, I guess my mum sent me a message saying be careful, but I think she's quite proud of me for like you know doing what I believe in and standing up for what I believe in. Yeah, yeah. About 5% of the Tarkine Forest Reserve is national park, while the rest is used for farming, mining, recreation, tourism and forestry. The Tarkine's official boundaries are not definitively marked, but about 100,000 hectares of its resource-rich forest was marked as a wood reserve by the former Labor government. Former Australian Greens leader Bob Brown and his activist organisation, the Bob Brown Foundation, are leading protest action in the Tarkine. The foundation is calling for the entire Tarkine to be declared a national park and handed back to its original indigenous owners. I think it's one of the uh, great wild places on earth that's left unprotected. I first went there in 1973 looking for the Tasmanian tiger and uh, walked with James Nally, who was a dairy farmer at Trawatta, down over the Rapid River. Um, but we didn't have any luck finding the tiger, but I ran into this beautiful rainforest, which is, turns out, is the largest temperate rainforest in Australia, of the planet. And I, I talk about it in those terms because it isn't just a wonderful piece of Tasmania, it in terms of the planet that we've got in 2017 is an absolute gem. And if it was in the Netherlands or it was... Uh, you know, in uh, any other European country for that matter, it would suddenly be uh, their pride and joy. Volunteers for the Bob Brown Foundation have conducted wildlife surveying while in the Tarkine. From a treetop canopy vigil, conservationist Dr Lisa Searle observed the landscape from above. There are a number of different endangered species present in this area and in these logging coops including the Tasmanian devil, the wedge-tailed eagle, the masked owl and the giant freshwater crayfish, all of which we've seen while we've been camped here. When we visited the protest camp, we were met by Scott Jordan. He's a campaigner for the Bob Brown Foundation and he's part of the group that walked eight kilometres past a locked forestry Tasmania gate in order to establish the camp back in February. 
If forestry workers call an exclusion zone to begin work, the camp will be forced to leave or face financial penalties and potential jail time under new anti-protest laws. How do you feel about that word protester? seems to have a lot of connotations for, I mean, politicians seem to use it against you. They, they pair it with words like violent, but you're, you're fine to be called. You would say you're protesting out here? Oh, certainly. I mean, we, we've been out here. And it's not a traditional protest. I mean, we've been out here serving. We've had mm. corner cameras out. And, um, trying to locate the nest of it. There's a masked owl that comes through. It's not mm -hmm. in their forest practices plan. It's the threatened species they have to report it with. Um, we've had it yeah, one in three nights that flies through the camp. <laughs> um, we've seen it. While the Tarkine holds incredible environmental value, it could also be a saving grace for Tasmania's forestry industry. In 2016, state government business enterprise Forestry Tasmania posted a loss of $67 million. In order to help the business, which has become increasingly reliant on state government subsidies, Tasmania's Mining and Resources Minister, Guy Barnett, presented a plan to access a further 356,000 hectares of the state's highly valuable specialty timbers ahead of the scheduled date in 2020. Forestry Tasmania have advised us that for one quarter of all the trees they harvest, they are uneconomic, hence they are losing money. Last year, for example, they lost $67 million, a book loss, uh, last financial year. This is unacceptable. Tasmanians want them to stand on their own two feet. Forestry Tasmania, which is the government business enterprise, um, and so as the responsible minister and the government, we're very keen and we have a plan for sustainable uh, growth uh, going forward. So one option was to cut back the amount of resource, so all that uneconomic wood uh, would not be harvested. So about one quarter of, of all the uh, trees that are harvested by Forestry Tasmania would not be harvested. That was one option where 700 jobs would be lost around Tasmania, mostly rural and regional Tassie, particularly in the northwest coast. Um, and we said, no, that's not an option. The other option is to keep subsidising the uh, industry going forward, which is an estimated $25 million a year. We said, no, that's not an option. And the other option is to make res more resource available of economic wood. So we have what's called the Future Potential Production Forest of some 356,000 hectares and uh, to make that available uh, going forward for the forest industry. This is an area that was and has been production forest. It is not, I repeat, it is not pristine wilderness, which the Greens would suggest it is. It is not. It's production forest. It has been, uh, since uh, white settlement, been used for forestry operations and harvesting and the like. And uh, under the previous government, they tried to lock it up and they did lock it up. We went to the election and we said, no more lockups. And the people of Tasmania agreed with that. In fact, on the northwest coast, the vast majority, it was under 10% that disagreed with that, that voted Green. 
and the overwhelming majority said no more lockups. So we came in, we tore up that agreement, we said no more lockups, we've introduced legislation to open up that area for forestry um, operations. Those most impacted by changes to the management of the Tarkai will be those living in the towns that surround the region and rely on jobs in forestry, farming and tourism. The industries that provide crucial jobs have been hit hard by rapid technological change and the forces of international markets. Some say if local jobs go, so will the towns. But towns like Smithton, which sits at the gateway to the Tarkine and has a population of about 4,000, are fighting back. When the vegetable plant was uh, scaled right back, people thought that the area was really going to struggle. In fact, People were mentioning it may become a ghost town. Well, it never has. That's Luke Howard. He runs a sports store in Smithton, opened by his grandfather in 1923. Tourists often stop by Luke's shop on the way to the Tarkine to buy fishing gear. Tourism is a big deal for Smithton. It's one of a few towns in the region positioning itself as an idyllic tourist destination and fighting for its share of the market. Of course, Tourists come to Smithton to see the spectacular rainforests and breathtaking landscapes that surround the town. Landscapes that people like Bob Brown fear are in danger of being lost. Take the Tarkine Drive. Step into an ancient land. Make you feel pretty young. Experience a wilderness like no other. Makes you feel small. We'll talk more about tourism in a later episode, but here's Luke again. I spoke to him in March, about a month after the protesters first entered the Tarkine. Do you know much about the Tarkine? I don't know very much at all. Do you know there's protesters there at the moment? Yeah, I know that. I didn't know there was protesters there right now, but I know they go there. Yeah, they're all um, concerned about the, the potential logging of it and, mm. and what that would mean. Yeah. Is that something that you comes that you think about a lot, or? <coughs> Excuse me. I look at it this way. I've got a view from my house that can see basically right out over the whole area, the river, and I see a lot of green area, and I reckon we don't need these people coming in telling us how to manage that part of the, the, um, uh, the area because I think we've always done a good job of doing it. Everyone's a little bit green, and I think with the awareness and that sort of thing these days, you just don't need these guys coming in, going clean over the top. There's no way in the world that the Hodgman government would allow that place to be stripped. You know, you just gotta have a balance, and I reckon me and probably 98% of the population would have the same view, yeah. We don't need people coming in telling us how to manage our area. Many people we talked to for this podcast share this view. After all, they and their families have lived in Smithton all their lives, and those protesting are university students, mainlanders, and people who have no idea how tough it is for towns when their industries are under pressure. At least, that's how the argument goes. Some of the other locals we met in Smithton didn't want to talk on the record about the Tarkine. One business publicly criticised those trying to stop logging in the past, but they were targeted by those who didn't agree with them, and their business suffered. 
does make me angry when people outside our area seems to have more uh, input into what's going on in our district than uh, the local people. That's Daryl Quillam. He's been a member of the Circular Head Council for three decades and mayor since 2007. Daryl has lived in the region all his life. When he was growing up, many of the roads weren't sealed, the region was much poorer, and most of the farms were owned by mums and dads, not corporations. Businesses have come and gone in his time, and so have the people. I can remember when I first got on council, we wouldn't have hardly had anybody from other countries coming into our district, but we have a lot uh, now. Some of those are Asian, some are, uh, uh, are Filipinos. There's, we have uh, people from Europe as well that come here, and we've got a number from, uh, or a large number from uh, New Zealand, and some from South Africa as well. So that's been good for our district because we... Um, we get a bigger, uh, uh, people coming from a wider area, uh, I guess it brings new uh, things that we uh, we haven't thought of before. So people coming from, from the cities and also from different countries uh, changes the, the character of the circular head a bit. It does, and it's done that over the last, especially 10 years, and I suspect that it'll change the character of circular head in the future as well. When I ask Daryl what issues the people of Circular Head care about, he talks about transportation, healthcare, and accessing government departments. He doesn't mention the Tarkine, at least until I bring it up, and even then, he doesn't talk about it in the way that the protesters do. What about the, uh, the issue of the Tarkine and what should be done with that region? Is that something that many people are concerned about? Uh, yes, they are. Uh, the Tarkine is something that is, um, well, we've got the road through the Tarkine now, which is a great start, but we have to get a lot more infrastructure and things for people to do while they're there, so we keep people in our region, tourists in our region for longer. And so what do you think about people protesting in the kooks at the moment? Yeah, I struggle with those because the, um, I mean, there are laws um, there, we've got a lot of the area in the Tarkine that is uh, is locked up forever, and uh, I support that because I think that there's some areas there we don't want to um, we don't want a forest at all, and so we don't want to cut trees down in in the area on the Arthur River is is just beautiful, and so we want to keep that for um, for pristine wilderness. But there are other areas, and it, and the government has been. I've done a lot of work with that, and so the areas that can be harvested, uh, the workers ought to be able to go there and not be pestered by uh, uh, people um, uh, protesting. And and so, if we didn't have any areas set aside, I could understand and I would support them. But the fact that we've got a big area set aside, uh, it's only a small section now in that area that they can uh, harvest now. They ought to be allowed to do that without protesters um, interfering. Does that um, does that affect the image of, of the region and also what's been? Yes, it does. And um, and the protesters, you've got to realise that um, pretty well all the protesters are, uh, are Greens. The Greens are only around twelve percent of our population, uh, twelve to thirteen percent. So therefore. Uh, yeah, when 80 odd percent uh, vote against them, I think that um, while they can have their say, and there's plenty of opportunity for them to have their say, 
I still believe that because 80% vote Liberal or Labor or uh, Independence, um, that order holds way and they should um, they should be able to uh, just agree with the laws of, of our land. Those who don't agree with the law of the land do indeed have their say. This is a community forum hosted by the Bob Brown Foundation in April. It was held in Launceston, the second biggest city in Tasmania and about two hours drive from the Tarkine. About 200 people packed into a theatre on a weeknight to hear Bob Brown speak. My name is Phyllis Bickford and I'm very proud of Tasmanian Aboriginal building. I think tonight's given me the awareness that uh, the Tarkine <coughs> is going to be our people's biggest challenge. We will meet it full on and we will win. Phyllis is one of many Aboriginal people who have a keen interest in protecting the Tarkine. The Indigenous history of the Tarkine is said to date back tens of thousands of years. In fact, the word Tarkine actually comes from the Aboriginal word Tarkina, the name of the people who lived in Sandy Cape on the west coast of Tasmania. My name is Jared William Edwards. I'm 39 years old. I'm a Tasmanian Aboriginal man, or Aboriginal Tasmanian. Um, I spent my whole life in Tekina, or the Tarkine area. So when was the first time you went to... Tekina. Tekina. Um, look, I was probably only a, a wee baby, probably a couple of months old, because growing up, it, it was my back door. So it was, a, it was our playground. It was where I learned about my culture, my heritage, my history. It was where my dad taught me what it meant to be an Aboriginal person. It's where I developed my connection to country and my connection to spirituality. So I suppose my first time I can't really remember but it's just, it's been a lifelong thing. Jared works as a land management supervisor for the Tasmanian Aboriginal Centre. The centre was set up in the 1970s. It provides a range of community services and is active in the political sphere, fighting to preserve Aboriginal culture and negotiating land handbacks. There's a lot of threats to the area, like there's threats to our cultural heritage first and foremost, not only our physical and our tangible heritage, but also the landscape values and to our stories, but there's threats to the, the environment for, from many fronts like mining, forestry, tourism can pose a threat if it's not thought out and not implemented properly because too many people down there creates a big problem. So the, the threats are huge. So a lot of people have many different ideas about what should be done with the region. Um, what do you think is the best way to manage it into the future? Aboriginal ownership. It, it, We've always said that from the, from the very start, it needs to return to our people. We are the custodians of this island, literally to, belongs to us. We, we've never stopped fighting for it, we never, never will. So I think first and foremost, um, return to Aboriginal ownership. And then, I suppose from there, sustainable and practical management. It, it has to be, in, you know, recreation can't come at the cost of our cultural legacy. So it has to be a well thought out, well implemented and well planned process for the, for the management. But I think the first step has to be return it to us as the rightful owners of the land and then sit down at the table with some meaningful dialogue and, and give us the funds to manage it and help us put the plans in place to make sure that it is sustainable. And, and so that everybody can enjoy it in their own way at no detriment to our cultural legacy and the environment. Mm -hmm.
Jared says Tarkina has a cultural significance, not just for the Aboriginal people, but to all Tasmanians. But he doesn't believe everyone shares a sense of ownership about that heritage. We always say that to people like, yes, this is our heritage, it's the legacy of our old people, but it belongs to Tasmania, you know, it, it's Lutruwita, that, that's our word for this island, it's a part of it, it's heritage, you know, we're all custodians of it, and we all have a responsibility to preserve and protect it, because it tells a very important part of, it, of our history, and if it's not here, there's a big chunk of it gone, and I think hopefully the generations to come will take ownership of it and they'll take immense pride in it and they'll, they'll be actually be able to go to those places even though they're not Aboriginal people and say this is something that is truly unique to our island. People have been fighting over what to do with the Tarkine for decades and that debate is far from over. Isn't that right Imogen? Yeah. And I guess what we've tried to show in this episode is that while this is a battle of growth and conservation, it's a multifaceted debate with a broad range of interest groups with different ideas about how the Tarkine should be utilised as an economic asset. We'll be exploring some of those ideas in our next episode, where we look specifically at the economic value of the Tarkine and its resources. But until next time, check out more content on The Advocate's website, theadvocate.com.au, or our Facebook page. Thanks for listening.